glorious indeed. Jesus is glorious and we are here to praise Him. We honour and celebrate His birth. Indeed, Jesus, the light of the world has come. Merry Christmas, everyone. Turn to each other first before we begin. and Wish each other a Merry Christmas. Wish your brothers and sisters in Christ a Merry Christmas. We will extend the time to fellowship after the service as well. Come, let us pray together as we convey this sermon to the Lord. O Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. As you came over Mary over 2,000 years ago, and you brought forth life in Jesus Christ, we ask, Holy Spirit, you come. Come over my words this day and bring forth life. Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the glorious King. Shine your light into our hearts this day and dispel all darkness and refresh our spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, Merry Christmas, everyone. And inevitably, when we uh, think of these words, Merry Christmas, we usually connect them with familiar pictures like this, right? We think of images of Santa Claus, beautifully wrapped presents, and white Christmas. Now, just in case some of you don't know, the younger ones especially, all these images of Santa Claus, beautifully wrapped presents, and white Christmas are essentially the products of a highly commercialized affair. And of course, history as well, the spread of Christianity to the West, Northern Hemisphere particularly, and that's why we have a white Christmas. So some years ago, I was studying in the US, as uh, some of you know. And so we go close to this uh, Hispanic couple. Uh, our children were in the same preschool. The husband was from Mexico, and the wife is from Argentina. By the way, Argentina won the World Cup. Woohoo! Messi, Messi. Any supporters here? I'm glad that the whole World Cup, I only watched one game, and it was the finals. It was great. Now, anyway, I always knew it, right, that White Christmas is something that belonged to the Northern Hemisphere, but it was only after I met this couple, grew close to them, that I realized the deceptive power of commercial advertising. It really struck home. As I listened to this wife share how growing up, she could never reconcile Christmas would ever be White Christmas. Why? Because she grew up in Argentina, Southern Hemisphere. December 25th is hot. Hot, always hot, just like us here in Singapore, always hot, but somehow we always dream of a white Christmas. It was only after she moved to US that it really made sense. Why do we celebrate a white Christmas? Now back to my time in the US, uh, it was uh, the season of winter wasn't a season that I really looked forward to. Why? Because it was cold. Maybe some of you like the cold weather, but not for me. I don't like the cold weather. Days were really short. Nights were very long. And so I was looking forward to the dawn of the sun every single morning. I never found myself so eagerly looking forward to a new calendar bun as the time I was in the US during the winter months. And those of you who just returned from an overseas holiday in the Northern Hemisphere, or you came back from Israel uh, trip, right? You probably understand what it means, that you have to quickly finish your tour, settle everything as much as you can while there was still daylight because the nights would be long and cold. Now, there was this particular incident which took place uh, when complete darkness fell upon my family. I can understand a bit of how the initial chaos was like, right, Cynthia? You try to see, but you cannot see. Uh, no light. And then it's not easy to shuffle around all these logistics in the dark. Something that we don't really like, the darkness. And so there was this particular incident and I traveled, right, with my family and we met this Malaysian couple. We were new to the US. Both of us were new together. So we decided to take a road, a road trip a short getaway, uh, and because both families were new to the U.S., we considered ourselves uh, really swaku, uh, 
right? The Hokkien colloquial term means you don't really know what's happening. So we took this short getaway and thinking it was still sufficiently early, at 5 p.m. we decided to have early dinner, thinking we can still make it. But it turns out, by the time we step out of the restaurant, the sky was already almost dark, darkening, dimming, the lights were dimming. And we kind of freaked out because the sky got dark fairly quickly. Within a short period of time, it was completely pitch black. Those of you who have gone overseas as well, you try driving at night, it's scary. Even going to Malaysia Highway, remember those days we take the buses, the coaches up to Malaysia, the highways were completely pitch black. And so it was similar as well. On the roads, at least we had some lights from oncoming traffic. But once we got to the mountainous road, the GPS brought us, because we were going to this mountainous resort, it was completely dark. Fear overcame me. <laughs> I was the driver. I cannot see anything. I was praying very hard. Oh, please, headlights don't fail. And please, GPS be accurate. Let me find this resort as soon as I can. There were absolutely no street lamps at all. The fear of darkness was so real. The fear of darkness was so real. I drove and drove for some time without any light in sight. Finally, I saw the sign. Very small little sign only, you know. Then my headlights caught the sign and I realized, wow, finally I found the place. I had to trust the GPS completely. Now that's a mini sermon in itself. We have to trust the divine GPS, God's guidance. When we cannot see anything, we have to trust God. But that's a very horrifying experience for me. From then on, I learned my lesson. I never drove to a mountainous resort that I never gone before at night ever again. And for the next few days that I stayed in the mountains, whenever we left uh, the hut, we will make sure we will leave all the lights in the hut on. So that when we drove back, oh, I can see where I'm headed. Can you imagine my delight, pun intended, when I can see the light? It was truly a delight for me to see the light. How comforting it is to have light. How comforting it is really to have light. And because of this harrowing experience, to some extent, I also read the scriptures in a new light. Pun intended. Huh? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now this same passage is also quoted by uh, the gospel writer Matthew. Just as Jesus began his ministry, you can refer to it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 for yourselves. Now, I can only imagine how comforting and liberating it is for the people in the ancient world to hear this word declared. The people who are walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. Now, their darkness was both, I think, literal as well as metaphorical. Not only did they experience darkness, real deep darkness every night, in its original context, Isaiah 8 was about the darkness of a coming Assyrian invasion. And so that's the end of chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8 was about the coming Assyrian invasion. And so they were scared of what's coming. I shudder to imagine what uh, you know, the life, life, life is like in Ukraine right now. Imagine cold winter, fighting a war. Your power is cut because of this nonsensical war. And then also maybe in the US with this bomb cyclone, power cut as well, deep freezing winter. What would it be like for them? How in the world are they going to get past the night? The people of Ukraine probably feel, you know what this Isaiah 8 ends on, on a very, very dreadful note. They will look to the earth 
and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's scary. It's really scary to end on a note like that. What dark and deep season may we find ourselves in this Christmas? You know, for the commercial world, Christmas is a glittery affair. They like you to think that everyone is happy, merry. But we know the reality. Christmas may be a very dark season for some of us. Today article, I just carried an article the other day, talking about how we can cope with loneliness in this merry season. I don't think it's just true for those who are outside of the church. Within the church, I'm sure there are some of us who do not find much joy, even though it's Christmas season. Here in Singapore, by the grace of God, we may never face a freezing winter, right? And we almost always have street lamps wherever we go. That's the grace of God given to us. But still, there are dark seasons in our lives. Our darkness is not literal, but for many of us, it's metaphorical. It's spiritual. Perhaps some of us are in the shadow of death, in the season of the shadow of death. That word that is taken in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, in the NIV, it says, Deep darkness, right? But literally, it means translates as the shadow of death. And then if you read Matthew's account, he uses the word shadow of death as well. The shadow of death. If going to the mountainous road was scary, I think death is a lot worse. Because you have no uncertainty. At least I know I can see a sign. At the worst, Maybe I drive out to the main road, find another motel, stay overnight. The next day, I can find my hotel, right? The mountainous resort. But death, how do you plan? How do you deal with a dark season like that? You cannot even see what's ahead. Or some of us may be in another kind of situation, another dark season, maybe not because of illness, but you cannot see the way forward because of the deep, deep darkness of the circumstances around you. It could be an uncertain future, Interest rates going up, GST coming up next year, financial difficulty, a seemingly endless relational conflict, a long-drawn sinful habit. And we cannot see the way forward. Do we find ourselves in some kind of darkness this season? The good news is there can be light in our lives. If we allow once again the same old message of Christmas to shine new light into our lives, Besides the usual, uh, Christmas is about God's gift. We know that, right? We also mentioned just now, Emmanuel, God with us. These are the usual Christmas messages. But I felt that the Lord wanted really to focus on the light, the light that He wants to shine in all our hearts today, the dawning of God's light in the darkness of our world. Despite the gloom and doom of Isaiah chapter 8, there comes a turning point. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. This is the good news. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. It's past perfect tense. They have seen that this great light will come. On those living in the land of deep darkness or the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Because of the very first Christmas 2,000 years ago, we are no longer alone in our deep darkness. We are no longer alone because Emmanuel, God has come. The light of the world, Jesus, has come. So light brings both warmth and vision. 
Like I said earlier, I was so looking forward, you know, to, to the sunrise every day during winter. Oh, finally, warmth. I can see. I can go out. At night, I just huddle at home. I don't want to go out at all. The sun warms up the temperature, so it's warm enough to go out. The sun shines forth light, so we can see clearly and find our way. In the same way, but in a greater way, Jesus, the light of the world, changes everything. When Jesus came, he brought healing. Healing in every sense, physical, spiritual, emotional, social. The Gospels testify that all who were brought to Jesus, they were healed. All who were oppressed by demons, they were set free. Those who were socially ostracized, no one wanted to befriend them, come close to them. Jesus came near, touched them. And so they found in Jesus a friend and an ally. When Jesus came, he brought grace and truth. He taught a new way of living, a way to forgive turn the other cheek, do not insist on one's rights. A new way of living that will heal broken relationships. Last Saturday, as I served the seniors at one of the senior activity centers, we were giving out uh, Christmas vouchers to, the center manager whispered to me, this is not our own uh, Teki uh, senior activity center, but another one that we arranged for a gift at Christmas. And so the center manager whispered to me, you know, a lot of these seniors, they have a lot of grievances, a lot of bitterness. They cannot forgive Life has been very hard to them. People have been cruel to them. And so they carry about all these grievances and bitterness. And so even if you want to share the gospel with them, it's going to take some time to break these hardened hearts. And as I reflected on the experience, you know what? I think it's true. But I think it's true not just for seniors, but for many of us, young and old. Life will always be cruel to us. Are we going to let that hurt us? People will surely hurt us. Will we carry these grievances and bitterness for the rest of our lives? A lot of relational conflicts persist because why? No one likes to or is willing to say sorry. <laughs> sorry seems to be the hardest word. As the famous song goes, right? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. And so as a result, too many of us carry around wounds, offenses for many years. For when it comes to illnesses, most of us will probably have no problems coming to God for healing because we know how powerless we are in the face of illnesses. Wow, we cannot save ourselves. That's why we go and find a doctor. We pray to God. That's quite straightforward. For unknown circumstances, we wrestle with God. God, I don't really want to trust you, but eventually, as we mature in Christ, we learn to surrender more and more of our lives to God because we recognize at the end of the day, we are finite. Only God is all wise and knowing. And so we come to this amazing God, right? Even though we struggle at first, eventually we relinquish control to Him to trust Him in the circumstances of our lives. But when it comes to relational conflict, as I reflect on ministry as a pastor, when it comes to relational conflicts, whether at home, at work, in church even, or in the area of victory over sin, victory over darkness, I find that many of us don't readily come to God for help. How many of us, for example, in relational conflicts consult a counsellor? The fact that we, most of us don't even want to do that or talk to a pastor already shows the depth of the situation, of the problem in our lives. Very few of us really obey God's word when it comes to ironing out relational conflicts with each other or overcoming sin. You know, once in a while, my wife will come to me and then she will tell me what I did wrong. Is that normal? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's normal. And I realized my first response most of the time is, is not, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Instead, 
my usual response is, oh, let me explain to you why I did this this way. And give a long list to justify myself why I did something that was considered wrong from her point of view. But I did that because I realized it's because my pride got in the way. I didn't want to acknowledge that I'm wrong, even though it's a small thing, especially if it's a small thing. <laughs> I don't want to say sorry. And that's pride getting in the way. Some of us, maybe worse, become more like Adam and Eve. Instead of acknowledging you're wrong, we blame somebody else. Oh yeah, I see this my children all the time. Hey, my God, God did this, my mate, mate did this. That's why I did it. Instead of taking personal responsibility. But worse is to blame my wife. Ah, yeah, because of you, that's why I did it this way. Ah. <laughs> right? But over time, I realized actually what's needed really is to acknowledge it's wrong. And I say, I'm sorry. Recently, I just had this little conflict as well, but thankfully, things were resolved fairly quickly. But again, these smallest incidences in life teach us, teach me at least, how difficult it is to say sorry. And that's why relational conflicts persist. I'm not a trained psychologist, but in the years of uh, my pastoral ministry, I have this working theory, which I think is very biblical as well. Now, let's hear this. The extent to which we receive God's forgiveness is related to the extent, number one, that you are willing to say sorry, and number two, to forgive. This is quite a loaded statement, so let me unpack this for us. The extent to which we can experience and receive God's forgiveness is correlated positively, correlated to the extent we are willing, number one, to say sorry, and number two, to forgive. So let me just go into the first statement first the extent to which we are willing to say sorry. A very familiar parable, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, from verses 11 to 32, probably most of us know this. Now in this parable, what if the prodigal son refused to acknowledge his foolishness and refused to repent and refused to come back to the father? Would there be reconciliation? Would he have experienced the father's forgiveness? In this parable, we know the father was longing to forgive, right? The father was waiting day and night looking out for the son. And that parable represents uh, God is the father who is longing for us to return. But what if the prodigal son refuses to say, I'm sorry, refuses to return? Will the prodigal son experience the father's forgiveness? Simple answer is no. Could it be that some of us, likewise, we fail to experience the extent of God's forgiveness to see that Jesus is Savior because we simply refuse to acknowledge we have sinned against God and against someone else? Why should I believe in Jesus? A common objection. I didn't do anything wrong, what? Really? <laughs> or are you just like me and, you know, when my wife confronts me, I didn't do anything wrong, what? Really? Are we merely justifying ourselves? Or will we be honest and recognize truly we all have done something wrong? Sure, we may not have committed big crimes, but from God's perfect standard of holiness and love, none of us will ever hit this mark perfectly. How many of us can dare to say, I have loved everyone around me perfectly? We may not have done anything wrong. But surely none of us can meet this perfect standard of unconditional love for God and for neighbor, and especially our family, our closest neighbor. 
How many of us dare to say that? Maybe there's another group of us who think, Ayah, Jesus died so long ago. I didn't send him to the cross. Why should I say sorry to God? I may have hurt others, but I didn't hurt God. From a historical point of view, of course you're right. None of us were there 2,000 years ago. None of us could have physically voted to say crucify him. But from a spiritual perspective, we are all guilty. Because if you understand correctly, from the scriptures, from the Bible, sin is not so much whether you have done something wrong or even failed to do a good deed. Sin at the end of the day really is a God and us issue. Sin is ultimately a God and us issue. Let me explain and unpack this a bit more. So again, most of us probably are familiar with the famous account of King David. He committed adultery and then murder. Two great crimes. When the Nathan, the prophet, first confronted him, like many of us, he couldn't see at first that he was the one in the wrong. Until the Nathan, the prophet, said very point blank, you are the man. Oh, then David, credit to him, at least he recognized, oh, I am the man. I am the one who has sinned. And yet when he said sorry, when he penned the song of repentance in Psalm 51, what did he write? He actually wrote, against you, against you, God alone, have I sinned. Hey, that's very interesting, isn't it? Surely he sinned against Bathsheba, right? Committed adultery against Bathsheba, and if not against Bathsheba, surely he sinned against Uriah, the husband, right? Surely he sinned against Uriah twice, violating his wife and then murdering him. So why did he write, against you, God alone, have I sinned? Because if we take a step back and we think about it carefully, every sin that is committed is ultimately a sin against God because God is the standard, is the source of all life, truth, holiness, and perfect love. God was the one who created Uriah, the one who created Bathsheba. And so when David violates Bathsheba, takes the life of Uriah, it is ultimately a sin against the Heavenly Father, God Himself. So likewise, when we lie, it isn't just hurting or deceiving a fellow human being. We are violating against the standard of living truth, Jesus himself. When we tease words, we are violating what God has set as a standard of truth. When we tell stories that are corrupt, we offend not only and corrupt others and deceive others, ultimately it is a sin against the one who is ultimate purity, God himself. And if I destroy the livelihood of the poor, for example, I oppress them. Who am I hurting? Not just the poor, but ultimately I'm sinning against God because He hurts when they are hurt. Matthew chapter 25, another familiar passage. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne like the song we just uh, the dancers offered to the Lord. On His glorious throne and all the angels with Him, He will be there, right? All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Notice this. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, Jesus says, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in, 
or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then Jesus, the king, replies, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then, conversely, the second half of this passage talks about those who did not clothe, those who were naked, did not feed, those who were hungry, did not visit the sick or those in prison. And then they ask the question, Lord, when did we see these things and not do it for you? And then Jesus says, whatever you did not do for one of these, you did not do to me. So friends, Jesus says it very clearly. Whatever we do to one another, essentially we are doing towards God. That's why sin is ultimately a God and us issue. It is not just fellow human beings we are hurting. Ultimately, it is us either against or serving God. Last Saturday, we had our Christmas cheer outreach event. It was a wonderful affair. We sought to bring uh, Christmas cheer to the community. For some time, we have been praying. Thank you once again for all who were serving and praying. When we have tidied up some videos, photos, we will share them again with more of you. It's already on our Facebook, but maybe in the service, we will find some time to do that again. And so for some time, we have been praying. On the night before, we even had a synchronized prayer at 9 p.m. We would gather, you know, just wherever we were, use the prayer pointers they were given to us on the website. We prayed together. On the actual day, I believe many people were praying for as well, uh, this event as well. Twice, the rain came, but it went away in 10-15 minutes. It didn't dampen the atmosphere at all. In fact, it brought a wonderful coolness. It was really hot before the rain came, but when the rain came, it began to be cool, and then it was hot again, and the rain came again, and then uh, it was cool again. So the rain really brought coolness. It didn't destroy, dampen the atmosphere at all. God was, uh, was good, really perfect. Praise the Lord. And one thing I was praying for for this uh, Christmas church event was for God's presence, for God's glory to be revealed at this event. But as I walked about that day, that Saturday afternoon, I couldn't sense the presence of God. Not like in worship services or pre-service prayer, right? I was praying with that. I can feel the presence of God in the worship. I can feel the presence of God. That's something that I regularly feel. But that Saturday afternoon, I walked about the whole place, central stage, up, down, left, right. I couldn't feel the presence of God. And so after that, I had a conversation with God. God, where were you? I'm sure you know we were praying for your presence, for your glory to come. Surely you heard our prayers. It was only after a while in the silence that a thought came upon me. It was impressed upon me. It was as if God was whispering. And this is what I, I felt the impression was. That God was saying, I was there as the people. Did God's glory and presence not come? Yes, He did. But not in the way I had wanted. He came in the form of the people we serve. What did we do that day? Were there great mighty deeds, miracles? No, none of that. We simply lavished God's love upon the community. And I believe that would delight the heart of God. When we learn to serve, to honour people as if they were God Himself. That's how we reflect the love of God. And so if we love our neighbours, our fellow human beings, that is love for Jesus. Conversely, our lack of love for others. That's a lack of love for God. And that is why it's sin. So physically, we may not have been there 2,000 years ago to send Jesus to the cross. 
But spiritually, we have all caused the death of Christ because it is because of our sin. Ultimately, it's a sin. God, sin is a God and us issue. We have all sinned against God. That's why Jesus had to pay the price for the penalty of our sins. By the mercy of God, God took upon our, Himself the sins of the world, our sins, and brought us life instead. Through death, His death and resurrection, through our faith in Him, His death and resurrection, we can be forgiven of our sins. But before we can experience forgiveness of sins, we must be willing to say, Lord, I am sorry. I, am re- I repent. That's the first condition for us to experience God's forgiveness, to recognize that we have sinned and we repent. Now that I've shown you the first part, let's unpack the second part. Let's see how the extent we receive God's forgiveness is also tied to the extent that we forgive. Could it be that some of us among us today have not experienced the wonderful depths of God's forgiveness because we were unwilling to forgive others who have hurt us? Maybe it never dawned upon you before, but today, hopefully, the light of God will shine upon your hearts. The Lord's Prayer, we always say or sing the Lord's Prayer, right? And there is this line, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a conditional clause. That means you have to fulfill one part of this statement before the second part comes into play. The extent we choose to forgive will determine how much forgiveness we experience from God. Again, very clear, God is not the one who is reluctant to forgive. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father is longing to forgive. But the condition is the younger son must repent. And so God is longing to forgive, but we limit his forgiveness because we choose not to forgive our debtors. Our debtors means they did something wrong to us. They do owe us something. Do you recognize it? It's not that they are innocent. When we choose to forgive, it doesn't mean that people didn't hurt us. No, it's precisely because they have hurt us. That's why they are our debtors. But when we choose to forgive, then God will forgive us. Luke chapter 6 presents Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Besides the Beatitudes, the call to, there was the call to turn the other cheek, you know, go an extra mile to love one's enemies. And then it comes to verses 37 to 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is another way of saying the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Give and you will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How big is your cup or jar of forgiveness? For the measure you use to judge and condemn others, it will be judged against you. The measure you use to forgive others, if you are generous and forgiving, it will be measured in the same way towards us. So again, let me be very clear. God has no problems forgiving. Jesus is the sign that God has no problems forgiving. But the problem lies on our part. Are we willing to forgive? This parable is fantastic. The younger brother must be willing to say sorry before he experiences the father's forgiveness. The elder brother must be willing to forgive. Do you know that the elder brother never enjoyed the party? Why? Because he shut himself out. Is the party always ongoing? 
Yes. Is there always life and forgiveness? Yes. But the elder brother will never experience the forgiveness unless he chooses to forgive. And then he joins the party. That's God's forgiveness for us, my friends. God is willing to forgive, but the extent we can experience His forgiveness is tied to the extent we are willing to say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry. And then secondly, to forgive. Don't be like the elder son. As a pastor for many years, I realized that's the problem that snacks many Christians. It's not the part that we say, I'm sorry, because in our rituals or confession, we often say, I'm sorry, God. This is the part that snacks many Christians, and even mature Christians, so-called, attending church for decades. We refuse to forgive. And that limits our spiritual growth. So what will this Christmas be like for you? Will it be just another Christmas, busy with the festivities for a while, but then quickly back to the deep and dark darkness? Or will we allow God to encounter us afresh through deep repentance and release of our pent-up bitterness? You know, they always say this phrase, Christmas is the season for giving. Let's play on these words, more puns today. For giving. Christmas is the season for giving. Forgive. Don't hold up this bitterness in your lives. Give yourself a Christmas present by choosing to forgive. As many have said, and I say it again, forgiveness is not saying that the other person didn't do you wrong. They have done you wrong, that's why they are debtors. They do owe you something. But forgiveness is ultimately releasing yourselves, setting yourselves free. So let me conclude. I'm going to skip a few slides there. What's Christmas going to be like for you? Is it dark? Gloomy? The good news is that Jesus has come into the world. Because the light of the world has come, we have hope. He's willing to extend His forgiveness to all of us, but we must be willing to repent and also to forgive. We come back to where we started. Will we just go through another Christmas, the commercialized version with Santa Claus, beautifully wrapped presents, dream of a white Christmas, something that the Argentinians will never experience? <laughs> Or will we allow Jesus to be our Savior, to shine His light into our hearts, to bring light to our darkness, to overcome the darkness of sickness, circumstances, sin, and most importantly, unforgiveness? Will we allow the story of Christmas to do a new work in our lives, to perform its greatest impact, to remove the penalty of sin, to break the power of sin in our lives, and to help us to forgive? Later on, when we sing the response song, Christmas isn't Christmas. Invite all of us really to just do business with the Lord, to reflect on the message that God wants for us to encounter today. Instead of Santa, we have the baby Jesus, not that old man, plum. <laughs> That's the commercialized view, right? But we have a baby wrapped in a manger, in a poor manger. Instead of beautifully wrapped presents, we acknowledge that our lives are messy. We thank God that God has come into our broken world, our dark world, to shine His light. He's willing to come to be with us, Emmanuel. Instead of a snow-filled Christmas, I pray that we will all experience a Christmas filled with His light, His glorious light. 
Let me close with this. If you don't remember everything else I said, surely you will remember this because this is the greatest pun for this sermon. Argentina won the World Cup thanks to Messi. Right? But we have another Messi. Messiah. Messiah. He took the cup of suffering. This is the serious point. He took the cup of suffering for the world. He took the cup of suffering for the world. Don't let his death be in vain. Come, let's pray.